Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon and English study group where we study the words of the Buddha in this book series titled The Words of the Buddha, The Path to Enlightenment, Revealing the Hidden. We're in volume 11, which is titled The Realms of Existence. We're studying chapters 111 through 120. And a student will actually be reading each chapter. Then I will share some teachings on that. And then we'll open up to any questions that you guys have as we progress in our class. The way that we start this class is we start typically with a meditation. So I'll guide you guys in a short meditation just to kind of prepare the mind for the class ahead. Then we'll actually move into the study part where, like I mentioned, we'll have someone read a chapter. I'll teach and then open up to any questions that you guys have. So I'd like to welcome all of you, whether you're joining us for the first time or you've been joining us regularly, I'd like to welcome all of you and invite you to be able to participate in the meditation. So I'd like to invite all of you guys to uh, join for meditation. And typically that's in the seated position, but you can also do the lying in standing position. Walking doesn't usually work so well with class because we're kind of in a fixed position unless we're doing an in-person class that's where we can really share walking meditation so you should have your lower body in your hands and arms completely relaxed if you are sitting on the floor that means you might be cross-legged with a cushion under your rear or if you're on a chair you might have your feet flat on the floor or cross at the ankles if you are cross-legged on the floor be sure your legs aren't too tight because that'll cut off the circulation and tends to create some pain in the body. But your lower body and your hands and arms should just be completely comfortable. Your upper body should be erect, nice and straight. This keeps the mind attentive and alert during the meditation. Next, just close the eyes and start breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. I'm gonna do some chanting to ease us into meditation. And if you know these chants, you're welcome to chant along. And then afterwards, I'll come back with some more guidance to help you in meditation. Namasami. 
Supatipano Makawato Sawaka Sanko You're just establishing the breath, a nice, natural, gradual breath, breathing in through the nose, and out through the nose. Remember, this is your practice, so your breath isn't going to necessarily match up to the guidance that I'm providing. Here, I'm just providing guidance to remind you to breathe in through the nose. Nice, natural, gradual breath. And then whenever you're ready, a nice, gradual exhale through the nose. Breathing in. in out with the breath well established start fixating the mind on the sound of the breath the sensation of the air maybe moving into the nose or the sound that you're hearing as the air is entering the nose the breath is the present moment fixate the mind on the breath the present moment. Breathing in 
in, out. With the mind fixated on the breath, whenever you observe that the mind is off the breath, cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath, the present moment. No need to label the thought. No need to observe it or judge it. No need to analyze it or try to figure out where it's coming from. Wherever you observe that the mind is off the breath, Cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath, the present moment. Breathing in and out.
to slowly make your way out of meditation we'll go ahead and transition over to the part of our class where we actually are studying the words of the Buddha if this is the first time you've joined if you're in zoom you can actually volunteer to read one of these chapters and then after each student reads then I'll share some teachings and we'll open up to any questions that you guys might have in order to ask questions, you can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom in the comment section, and our moderators will see that and be sure your question gets asked. If you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. So I'll just turn things over to all of you guys so that we can progress through our class today. Let's begin chapter 111, The Mother's Milk. Monks. This cycle of rebirth is without discoverable beginning. 
A first point is not identifiable of beings roaming and wandering on, hindered by ignorance, unknowing of true reality, that is, and fettered by craving. What do you think, monks? Which is more, the mother's milk that you have drunk and roamed and wandered on through this long course? This or the water in the four great oceans? As we understand the teachings taught by the perfectly enlightened one, Venerable Sir, the mother's milk that we have drunk as we roamed and wandered on through this long course, this alone is more than the water in the four great oceans. Good, good monks. It is good that you understand the teachings taught by me in such a way. The mother's milk that you have drunk as you roamed and wandered through this long course, this alone is more than the water in the four great oceans. For what reasons? Because, monks, this cycle of rebirth is without discoverable beginning a first point is not identifiable of beings roaming and wandering on, hindered by ignorance or unknowing of true reality, and fettered by craving. For such a long time, monks, you have experienced discontentedness, misery, and disaster, and swelled in the cemetery. It is enough to experience fading away of strong feelings towards all conditions, enough to become free from strong feelings towards them, enough to be liberated from them. All right. Thank you, Rick. There's a few things that you can gain from this particular discourse. Remember, we're moving into talking about the cycle of rebirth here. So far, this book has gone through each of the five realms. And now the Buddha is describing the cycle of rebirth. And he's done this in other discourses that we studied last week, where he talked about how the beginning of the cycle of rebirth is undiscoverable, meaning when did all of this start? It's undiscoverable. And this can actually be really helpful for you because oftentimes that's a question that someone might have a craving or desire to understand. And if you understand that it's undiscoverable, then you can just let that go and focus on the present moment, no longer having this longing or yearning to know you know, when did all of this really start? Because it really doesn't matter, truthfully. If it was 11 million years ago or 111 million years ago or a billion years ago when being started in the cycle of rebirth, if we got whatever that number is, it doesn't change the fact that the mind is discontent and it needs to eliminate craving, anger, and ignorance in order to get to enlightenment. So if you have this burning desire to know, here you can see the Buddha saying it's undiscoverable. So you can let that go. The other thing that you can glean from this particular discourse is how essentially you've had countless rebirths prior to this existence that you're in now. There's just been countless, 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 countless rebirths and multiple existences. A large majority of those have been in the lower realms. And because of these countless rebirths, the Buddha is explaining that the amount of milk that we drink in those previous rebirths, those previous existences, is more volume than all the water and all the seas. This helps you to understand just how many rebirths you've actually had. And now to ultimately be in the human realm, this is the ideal place to exist because now you can really truly make an effort to get to enlightenment. Because when we're in hell, the animal realm, the afflicted spirits realm, those beings can't get to enlightenment at all. They can't cultivate their consciousness enough to actually get to enlightenment. And in the heavenly realm, those beings are oftentimes so complacent because they're only experiencing pleasant feelings that they also have 
a real obstacle to getting to enlightenment because they lack motivation. Oftentimes beings in the heavenly realm are reborn down into the lower realms. So here in the human realm, we experience all three feelings of pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. So therefore, there's kind of like this built-in motivation to get to enlightenment because of those feelings, you know, those painful feelings and those neither painful nor pleasant feelings. And we have the ability to learn, reflect, and practice to cultivate our consciousness. So this is the ideal existence. But it's helpful to understand that you've had these previous existences because if you ever start having memories of previous lives, you won't feel like you're going crazy, for example. If you only thought you only ever had one life and you started having deja vu or you started having a lot of experiences where these residual memories were coming up in very vivid memories sometimes, you might think that you're actually going crazy. Or if you get contact from beings in these other realms of hell, animal realm, of course you're interacting with animals all the time, but the afflicted spirit realm and the heavenly realm, these formless realms, oftentimes people can get very scared or very fearful when they're being contacted or they're hearing communication from these other realms. But if you understand that this is just completely normal because of what exists, that these five realms exist, and it's possible for these other beings to communicate with you and that you've been countless beings in the past and that if you start having flashbacks or memories or observing things that are from past lives, this is completely normal. What you would like to do is just get your mind rooted into the present moment and just realize right now you are this being whoever you are as a human being, whether it's Rick or Miranda or Jan or Jacqueline or Aluxo or Shantana or Aaron or Amina or whoever this being is that we refer to you now, then that's the being that you are now. You can let go of these past memories and allow the mind to reside in the present moment, not being shaken up just by having observed past lives at different times potentially in your life. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? It looks like we have no questions at this time, sir. All right, so we'll go to chapter 112. Jan, will you please read 112 for us? Yes, thank you, Rick. In misfortune, in misery, in this long course. Monks, this cycle of rebirth is without discoverable beginning. The first point is not identifiable of beings roaming and wandering on, hindered by ignorance, unknowing of true reality, and fettered by craving. Whenever you see anyone in misfortune, in misery, you can conclude, we too have experienced the same thing in this long course. For what reason? Because, monks, this cycle of rebirth is without discoverable beginning. A first point is not identifiable of beings roaming and wandering on, hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving. For such a long time, monks, you've experienced discontentedness, misery and disaster and swelled the cemetery. It is enough to experience fading away of strong feelings towards all conditions, enough to become free from strong feelings towards them, enough to be liberated from them. All right. Thank you, Jan. So here, once again, the Buddha is starting out explaining the same thing, that this cycle of rebirth has been going on for an immeasurable amount of time. It's not discoverable of when it actually began. But then he adds this piece where he's saying any misfortune or misery that you see anyone experiencing right now, 
you've also experienced that same misfortune and that same misery. Where this actually helps you is this can help you to cultivate loving kindness and compassion in this existence. So if you see somebody who is, you know, struggling through poverty or generational poverty or homelessness or having difficulty acquiring food or necessities, or you see somebody who's struggling uh, just with being able to learn and, and comprehend or being able to talk, or if you see someone who has some disability or something like this, any kind of misfortune that you see anybody experience, you can think based on what the Buddha is explaining here that you've also experienced that same misfortune and that same misery. And you have now potentially overcome that depending on where you are in this life. And therefore, this can arise, this loving kindness or this active goodwill, this genuine interest in seeing all beings be well. And this compassion, where it's the concern for the misfortune of others. So if you kind of put yourself in that person's shoes, when you see somebody struggling with maybe alcoholism or drug addiction or something else, whether it was in this life or some previous life, the Buddha is saying you've struggled with those same exact things. And this can help to arise loving kindness and compassion so that now you can practice that when you're encountering people who are experiencing misfortune and misery. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Um, no questions on Zoom at this time. Miranda, do you have anybody? I think Chantana was trying to ask the question and accidentally sent it <laughs> to me. Um, oh, okay. How to show loving kindness and compassion to a 10-year-old child when their parents just accidentally passed away from a sea plane crash. Yeah, the best thing to do is just to you know, be with them, let them know that it's okay, let them know that these things happen, let them know that you're a person that they can reach out to if they have a need to talk or have somebody listen to what it is that they're challenged with. If there's anything that you can help them with, let them know that you're there to help them. These kind of things can be reassuring to someone because oftentimes what we do is when we experience situations like this in the unenlightened state where we don't understand impermanence, then the mind kind of closes itself off and kind of, you know, kind of uh, becomes guarded and holds on to the sadness or the anger. And if you let this child know that you're there to listen and understand, and if there's ever a time that they need to talk or if there's anything that they need, then they know that they have somebody that they can come to. And sometimes they're not in the mindset of talking right now in that moment. So just letting them know that if at any point they're interested in talking or they would like somebody to listen to some of the challenges they're experiencing or if they need anything, that you always have an open door for them to come talk with you. This is really helpful for them to know that they're, they've got help and someone there that's willing to assist them if they need it. It appears that there are no other questions at this time. Well, Miranda, are there anybody else? Not at this time, no, sir. Thank you. Okay, so we'll move on to the next chapter, chapter 113. Okay, for 113, I have asked Miranda to read. Yes, sir, thank you. In happiness and fortune in this long course. Monks, this cycle of rebirth is without discoverable beginning. A first point is not identifiable of beings roaming and wandering on. 
hindered by ignorance or unknowing of true reality, and fettered by craving. Whenever you see anyone happy and fortunate, you can conclude, we too have experienced the same thing in this long course. For what reason? Because, monks, this cycle of rebirth is without discoverable beginning. A first point is not identifiable of beings roaming and wandering on, hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving. For such a long time, monks, you have experienced discontentedness, misery and disaster, and swelled the cemetery. It is enough to experience fading away of strong feelings toward all conditions, enough to become free from strong feelings toward them, enough to be liberated from them. All right. Thank you, Miranda. So this is just the opposite of the discourse that we just saw, where that previous discourse, I was explaining how it can help to arise loving kindness and compassion for beings that are experiencing misfortune. Here, in this particular discourse, the Buddha is explaining that anybody that you see experiencing a certain happiness or a certain fortunate situation, that you've also experienced that. So if you see a famous celebrity or if you see someone who's really rich and wealthy or you feel like someone else is so much more beautiful than you or they're so much smarter, they're able to learn so much more easily than you, uh, this is a good way for you to train the mind to let go. Because oftentimes the mind is craving and yearning to have something more than it has right now. The mind just feels like, ah, oh, if I was just famous, everything would be perfect. Or if I was just rich and wealthy, everything would be perfect. Or if I just had better looks and I was more beautiful or more handsome, or if I just had better intelligence in this life, it would be so much better for me. And what this does is it's setting you up for rebirth in a future life, because if you still crave all of these things and feel like you haven't had them and you desire them and you have this mental longing for them, then you're setting yourself up for a rebirth in a future life because you're still wanting these things. But if you realize that you've already had them, which is what the Buddha is explaining, is that this cycle of rebirth is so long and you've been so many different beings in the past that you've already had all these things and you can let go instead of continuing to desire them, instead of continuing to long for them, when you see other people experiencing happiness or fortunate things that you feel like you want, just remind yourself, oh, I've already done that before. I've already experienced that before. And this can help the mind to let it go. Whereas if you feel like you haven't had those things, then there's a tendency for the mind to crave and desire for those things. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? No questions at this time, sir. Okay, so we'll go to chapter 114. Okay, I'll read that. Chapter 14 is entitled, The Stream of Blood. Monks, this cycle of rebirth is without discoverable beginning. A first point is not identifiable of beings roamed and wandering on, hindered by ignorance, unknown knowing of true reality, and fettered by craving. What do you think, monks? Which is more, the stream of blood that you have shed when you were beheaded as you roamed and wandered on through this long course? This or the water of the four great oceans? As we understand the teachings taught by the perfectly enlightened one, venerable sir, the stream of blood that we have shed when our heads were cut off as we roamed and wandered on through this long course, this alone is more than the water in the four great oceans. Good, good monks. It is good for you to understand the teachings taught by me in such a way. 
the stream of blood that you have shed as you roamed and wandered on through this long course. This alone is more than the water in the four great oceans. For a long time, monks, you have been cows, and when, as cows, you are beheaded, the stream of blood that you shed is greater than the waters in the four great oceans. For a long time, you have been buffalo, sheep, goats, deer, chickens, and pigs. You were beheaded, and <clears throat> beheaded. The stream of blood that you shed is greater than the waters in the four great oceans. For a long time, you have been arrested as burglars, highwaymen, and adulterers. And when you were beheaded, this stream of blood that you shed is greater than the water in the four great oceans. For what reason? Because, monks, this cycle of rebirth is without discoverable beginning. A first point is not identifiable of beings roaming and wandering on, hindered by ignorance, a knowing of true reality, that is, and fettered by craving. For such a long time, monks, you have experienced discontentedness, misery and disaster, and swell the cemetery. It is enough to experience fading away of strong feelings towards all. Okay, so thank you for that. So here, the Buddha is using the blood similar to the way he talks about tears, the way he talks about mother's milk, and now the blood, helping to explain just how many rebirths you've experienced, comparing it to the water and all the oceans. So if you have ever observed how much water is truly on the earth and on the planet, and in these big, great oceans with these huge, enormous depths, the Buddha is saying that the blood in all of the existences that you've experienced in the past is more voluminous than all of this water. This is helping to paint a picture for you of just how many rebirths you've actually experienced in the past, helping you to perhaps let go of existence and realize, you know, I'm tired of this. I'm tired of this constant rebirth. I'm tired of constantly craving. I'm tired of being angry when I don't get what I want. I'm tired of, you know, having arguments and, you know, pushing people away and experiencing all these problem situations in my life. Let me be done with all of that and carrying around this burden of craving, anger, and ignorance and liberate the mind from all of this so that I can experience peace in joy for the rest of this life and then not need to experience rebirth ever again. So this can kind of help you to visualize just how many existences you've had in the past and help the mind get to a point where it just isn't interested in being in life in terms of existing in the cycle of rebirth or ever being back down into those lower realms ever again. Because once you get to the first stage of enlightenment, then you'll never be reborn back down into the lower realms. So that's a really important step in order to develop your practice to the point where you've gotten to the first stage of enlightenment. Then you won't see those lower realms ever again. Because once you're in those lower realms, the Buddha describes hell in the animal realm as a prison. And the reason why is because you're constantly reborn over and over and over again. In those animal realms, we're doing things like killing, stealing, having sexual misconduct, and we're doing that continuously for our own survival because there's really no other way for us to survive in the animal realm unless we kill, unless we steal, unless we have sexual misconduct. And because we're creating so much unwholesome gamma, we continuously get reborn over and over and over again until we get to an improved rebirth within the animal realm that has a tendency to allow us to then, you know, 
get propelled into the human realm or into the heavenly realm. You know, rebirths in the animal realm, such as snakes, you know, they're constantly killing or lions, they're constantly killing. This is why their lifespans tend to be quite short, where if you get into an existence like a turtle or a elephant, the lifespan of these beings tend to be a lot longer because they're not really killing so much and they have these longer lives because of that and because they're not doing as much killing and stealing and sexual misconduct perhaps then they're able to get to an improved rebirth potentially into the human realm on a subsequent birth which would be ideal again so that you can cultivate the mind and get to enlightenment in this life as a human so understanding all these countless rebirths can be helpful and motivating for you Remember, the Buddha never uses these realms of existence to guilt, shame, or fear somebody into learning and practicing his teachings because the whole goal of his teachings is to eliminate guilt, shame, and fear among other discontent feelings. What he's doing in all of these discourses is just explaining true reality of what actually exists so that you understand it, of what has been happening in the past, what can potentially happen in the future so that you can focus on training the mind in this life and get to enlightenment and no longer experience any of these problematic situations where there's birth, therefore there's going to be sickness, aging, and death. There's going to be this misery, this despair, this displeasure, and therefore if you continue to experience these things, it's just going to be constant around and around and around and around. And now is your chance to get off this wheel of the cycle of rebirth and get to enlightenment so that you don't need to keep experiencing this over and over and over again. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Okay. Um, we have one question on Facebook from Jan. Thanks, Rick. Appreciate it. Um, thank you, Teacher David. I understand um, how this can benefit us uh, as motivation. I personally find that my own life and this one life that I am experience, I'm experiencing is quite enough motivation to not want to experience another one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I have, um, I guess I have a question about uh, the teaching that we should not believe any of this. We should be able to independently verify it um, and experience it for ourselves. Uh, I've not experienced any real um, memories of past lives, and so I have no reason to believe that this is the case, that there are, in fact, past lives. So I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit. Thank you. Sure. Sometimes we experience what we call deja vu, you know, where you kind of feel like you've done something before, like you're experiencing something in this life and you feel like you've done it before, but you know it's not in this life. This can be residual memories that are kind of bubbling up. But more likely, the way that you'll probably experience this, if you experience it, is that as the mind awakens more and more and the pollution of mind comes out, this is where the mind can kind of open up and experience more vivid memories. Not everybody experiences this, but some people do. 
And if that happens, wonderful. You'll be able to observe past lives and you'll have 100% truth that you know that the cycle of rebirth is 100% real. But should you never get to that, say you get to enlightenment and you, or even you're just progressing towards enlightenment and you can see that the condition of the mind is gradually improving, but yet you never experience memories of past lives. Well, the Buddhist teachings of the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts, the Brahma Viharas, everything else, all the meditation training led to this improved condition of mind where your mind is in the first, second, third, or ultimately the fourth stage of enlightenment where the mind is actually enlightened, but yet you've never experienced memories of past lives. Well, you can at least have confidence that, okay, everything else that I learned about the Buddhist teachings led to this improved condition of mind where the mind is experiencing one of these stages of enlightenment or potentially even enlightened. So you have confidence in the Buddha that his teachings lead exactly where he said in terms of getting to enlightenment, but yet you've never actually confirmed the cycle of rebirth necessarily for yourself. Then you can know that, okay, if he spoke all the truth about all these other things, and I've gone from being an angry person to complete peace and joy in the mind permanently for the rest of this life, then you can have confidence that, okay, I will take the Buddha on face value that 99.9% of all of his other teachings were accurate. So he's most likely accurate on the cycle of rebirth too. That might be one way that you decide to approach it. But as you progress, just be aware that you may experience memories of past lives. And if you do, this can be complete confirmation of the cycle of rebirth. And for people who have experienced that, they know that for sure. With that said, as I mentioned, you don't need to actually experience the observation of past lives in order to get to enlightenment. So what's happened in the past is in the past. And, you know, it's in the past. You're now a human being. And what may or may not happen in the future, it's in the future. So if a person focuses on the core teachings and moving the mind to enlightenment through training the mind to eliminate those 10 fetters, This is why someone can actually get to enlightenment without having actually independently confirmed the cycle of rebirth because not everybody experiences the memories of past lives and the elimination of those 10 fetters and getting rid of the pollution of mind doesn't necessarily include observing past lives. For people who have observed past lives, it makes it really easy and really straightforward. But for someone who hasn't, but is still making their way to enlightenment based on all the other teachings, you might actually just get to a point where you have confidence in the Buddha because everything else he taught is 100% the truth. And then you can just know that, okay, I will take him on his word that this is true as well. Thank you, teacher David. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel that I do have confidence in the teachings of the Buddha. And so I wonder if I don't have any experience of past lives, um, if that's some indication that maybe I I was leading myself and I don't have full confidence. I'm not sure if you, I mean, the way that you ask the question, you're just looking for how to independently verify this. The ways to independently verify it is if you've experienced deja vu, if you observe past lives, if you look at what I'm going to talk about tomorrow in the group learning program. And I think you've had that class before, chapter 20 
in volume one where I talk about how the unenlightened mind functions very much like an animal. And you can see these animalistic instincts and these animalistic behaviors in the unenlightened mind. You can see how we've evolved out of the animal realm because even though we're in this human existence, the unenlightened mind as a human functions very much like an animal. So you can start seeing a lot of the qualities of the animal realm in human beings even though we're not animals. And this can help to build your understanding of past existences in the animal realm because those existences have conditioned our mind here in the human realm. Even though we're in the human realm, having had those countless rebirths in the animal realm, once the being exists in the human realm, we still oftentimes function very much like animals. This is why we kill. This is why we steal. This is why we have sexual misconduct. This is why we do all the things that we do. You know, if a, if a, another animal doesn't like what another animal does, we roar and we fight and we sometimes fight till death. Well, in the human realm as an unenlightened being, we do a lot of these same things. So when you start connecting enough of these dots, you may be able to see very clearly that, yes, I can see how this cycle of rebirth is true. You just might not have connected enough of those dots right now. If you have contact from the heavenly realm and you interact with heavenly beings, that can be a confirmation for you. If you have communication or observe afflicted spirits or ghosts, that can be confirmation for you. Or hell beings, this can be confirmation for you. So maybe just enough pieces haven't come to your attention yet for you to put it together and have confidence that this particular aspect of the Buddhist teachings is the truth. So I don't sense that you lack confidence in the Buddha, but this is something that I'm just sharing that you can develop your confidence through seeing enough of these pieces. Or if you don't see these pieces ever, but your mind is getting closer and closer to enlightenment, it's kind of like, yeah, did the Buddha just kind of slip in the cycle of rebirth thing? No, you know, he, he, all that other stuff is leading to this improved condition of mind and enlightenment. So you can get to a point where potentially you you know, take it on face value and you have this confidence that, okay, if all this other stuff led to this improved condition of mind, then I have confidence that this cycle of rebirth is true. I just haven't seen the evidence for myself yet. Thank you, Teacher David. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. I'm not seeing any other questions at this time, sir. Okay. So let's move to the next chapter, which is 115. Jen, would you please read uh, chapter 115 for us? Yes, thank you, Rick. Beings roaming and wandering on from this world to the other world, and from the other world to this world. Monks, this cycle of rebirth is without discoverable beginning. A first point is not identifiable of beings roaming and wandering on, hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving. Just as a stick thrown up into the air falls now on its bottom, now on its side, and now on its top, so too, as beings roam and wander on, hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving, now they go from this world to the other world. Now they come from the other world to this world. For what, what reason? Because, monks, this cycle of rebirth is without discoverable beginning. A first point is not identifiable of beings roaming and wandering on, hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving. For such a long time, monks, 
you've experienced discontentedness, misery, and disaster, and swelled the cemetery. It is enough to experience fading away of strong feelings towards all conditions, enough to become free from strong feelings towards them, enough to be liberated from them. Okay, thank you, Jan. This is another discourse that is just helping to paint a more and more vivid picture of what the Buddha is sharing in terms of the cycle of rebirth. Here, he's just essentially talking about beings just coming and going and coming and going and coming and going throughout all these realms. This is just happening all the time without anybody monitoring it, without anybody administering it. It's just happening as part of the natural laws of existence. So that's what he's sharing here where he's saying, you know, beings coming from one world to another world and this world to another world. When he's talking about worlds, he's talking about the realms. And let me just remind you guys that while we call these realms or worlds, it's not like they're far away. It's not like the heavenly realm is like really far away out in the sky somewhere or the hell realm is deep down into the core of the earth or something like this. This is oftentimes the imagery that we imagine when we think about different realms or worlds or, you know, that they're really far apart. In the same time and space, these beings are all existing in the same time and space. So just like right now, this is a human being in this chair, there could be an animal that comes and sits here, right? A a spider or a fly or an ant or something else could come here and sit in this chair at some point. In the same thing, a hell being, an afflicted spirit, a heavenly being can come and interact and be in this chair as well. So while we call these worlds or realms, they're not separated and really far apart. They're within the same time and space. These beings are just existing in different existences. So what questions do you guys have on this chapter? It looks, uh, we do have one question from Miranda. Yes, thank you, Rick. Looking at this part that says, just as a stick thrown up into the air falls, and this all those other ways. Just to clarify, since beings are the owners and heirs of their karma, is it our karma and our state of mind at the time of physical death then that kind of brings us to where we're going to be the next rebirth that we're going to have if we have a lot of unwholesome karma and the state of our mind is not in the final stage of enlightenment at the time of physical death that kind of leads us to where our next rebirth is going to be sir yes that's right so at the time of death if the mind still has any craving whatsoever there's going to be rebirth in one of the the five realms. And then it's our gamma or the results of our decisions that's going to determine which realm and in what condition we're going to experience of rebirth in that realm. This is where human beings that are in the human realm today, as you learn about these teachings more and more and you learn how to observe the qualities of mind, a person can actually get to the point where you can understand or at least I know that I can understand and I know that the Buddha was able to understand what realm beings are going to be reborn into. So if there's a very hateful, murderous, vindictive, resentful person that's in the human realm, it's very clear that if this person dies, they're going to be reborn into the hell realm. If a being has a a certain amount of craving and anger and ignorance, 
it's very clear that maybe they're functioning like an animal in a lot of ways, even in the human existence, that they're going to be reborn into the animal realm. And then the same thing with the afflicted spirit realm. Same thing with the heavenly realm, that there's beings in the human realm that are quite peaceful and quite joyful, even though they're not enlightened, they are have a significantly diminished amount of discontentedness, even without having ever learned the Buddhist teachings. It's very clear that this person is going to be reborn into the heavenly realm. And then there's beings that it's clear they're going to be reborn back into the human realm. So it's our craving that decides if there's going to be rebirth at all. That's the switch, yes or no. And then if it's yes, then it's our results of our decisions, our gamma, that's going to decide and determine which realm and what condition we are going to experience in that realm. So it's not a being that's overseeing this. It's the results of our own decisions. Yes, thank you for the clarification on that, sir. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. It looks like we don't have any more questions at this time, sir. All right, we have chapter 116 next. Okay, uh, I have asked Miranda to volunteer for this one. Yes, thank you, sir. So impermanent, so unstable, so unreliable conditions. Monks, this cycle of rebirth is without discoverable beginning. A first point is not identifiable of beings roaming and wandering on, hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving. In the past, monks, this Mount Vepula was called Pachina Bamsa, and at that time, these people were called Tivaras. The lifespan of the Tivaras was 40,000 years. They could climb Mount Pachina Bamsa in four days and descend in four days. At that time, the perfectly enlightened one, Kakusanda, an Arahant, a perfectly enlightened one, had arisen in the world. His two chief disciples were named Vidhura and Sanjiva, an excellent pair. Sea monks, that name for this mountain has disappeared. Those people have died, and that fortunate one has attained final nibbana, or final enlightenment. So impermanent are conditions, monk, so unstable, so unreliable. It is enough, monks, to experience fading away of strong feelings toward all conditions, enough to become free from strong feelings toward them, enough to be liberated from them. At another time in the past, monks, this Mount Vipula was called Bankaka, and at that time these people were called Rohitasas. The lifespan of the Rohitasas was 30,000 years. They could climb Mount Bankaka in three days and descend in three days. At that time, the perfectly enlightened one, Konaga Amana, an Arahant, a perfectly enlightened one, had arisen in the world. His two chief disciples were named Iosa and Uttara, an excellent pair. Sea monks, that name for this mountain has disappeared. Those people have died and that fortunate one has attained final Nibbana. So impermanent are conditions, monks, so unstable, so unreliable. It is enough, monks, to experience fading away of strong feelings toward all conditions enough to become free from strong feelings toward them, enough to be liberated from them. At still another time in the past, monks, this Mount Vipula was called Supasa, and at that time, the people were called Supayas. The lifespan of the Supayas was 20,000 years. They could climb Mount Supasa in two days and descend in two days. At that time, the perfectly enlightened one was Kasapa, 
an arahant, a perfectly enlightened one, had arisen in the world. His two chief disciples were named Tisa and Bharadavaja, an excellent pair. Sea monks, that name for this mountain has disappeared. Those people have died, and that fortunate one has attained final nibbana. So impermanent are conditions, monks, so unstable, so unreliable. It is enough, monks, to experience fading away of strong feelings toward all conditions. Enough to become free from strong feelings toward them, enough to be liberated from them. At present, monks, this Mount Vipula is called Vipula, and at present these people are called Magadans. The lifespan of the Magadans is short, limited, fleeting, one who lives long lives a hundred years or a little more. The Magadans climb Mount Vipula in an hour and descend in an hour. At present, I have arisen in the world, an Arahant, a perfectly enlightened one. My two chief disciples are named Saraputta and Mogalana, an excellent pair. There will come a time, monks, when the name for this mountain will have disappeared, when these people have died, and I will have attained final Nibbana. So impermanent are conditions, monks, so unstable, so unreliable. It is enough, monks, to experience fading away of strong feelings toward all conditions, enough to become free from strong feelings toward them, enough to be liberated from them. This is what the perfectly enlightened one said. Having said this, the fortunate one, the teacher, further said this. This was called Pachinavamsa by the Tivaras and Vankaka by the Rohati. Rohitasas, Supasa by the Supya people, Vipula by the Magadan folk. Impermanent, oh, are conditions. Subject to arising and vanishing. Having arisen, they are eliminated. Their calming is peaceful. All right. Thank you, Miranda. Here, the Buddha is just helping his students to understand impermanence based on the things that are around them discussing a certain mountain that has essentially been depleted and depleted and depleted to the point where people are being able to go up and down this mountain in shorter and shorter time frames because the mountain is being depleted and the mountain is impermanent. Sometimes we look at these things like a big mountain and we think it's so majestic and so big that we don't consider that, yeah, it's actually impermanent. It's constantly changing. And the Buddha is just helping his students see this impermanence, because the more that you see impermanence and you understand impermanence, then the mind is less and less likely to grab onto things, craving for these things to be permanent, because the mind already knows that they are impermanent. Or if you're finding that your mind is clinging to things and there's discontentedness that is arising because of it, then the mind can get to a point where it understands these things are impermanent and then it's more easily able to let those things go. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? I'm not seeing any questions at this time, sir. Okay, so we'll go to the next chapter, which is chapter 117. Okay, for 117, uh, I'm assigned. I think I'm one of the people assigned. So I'll read a page and a half, and Jan, if you will take the rest of it. Okay, chapters 117. Conditioned objects are impermanent. Monks, conditioned objects are impermanent. Conditioned objects are unstable. Conditioned objects are unreliable. It is enough to become dissatisfied with all conditioned objects, enough to become free from strong feelings toward them. 
and enough to be liberated from them. Monks, Sinero, the king of mountains, is 84,000 Yojanas or Yohanas in length, and 84,000 Yohanas in width. It is submerged 84,000 Yohanas in the great ocean and rises up 84,000 Yohanas above the great, um, the great ocean. Yohanna is about 12 to 15 uh, kilometers. One, there comes a time, monks, when rain does not fall for many years, for many hundreds of years, for many thousands of years, for many hundreds and thousands of years. When rain does not fall, seed life and vegetation, medicinal plants, grasses, and giant trees of the forest wither and dry up and no longer exist. So impermanent are conditioned objects, so unstable, so unreliable. It is enough to become dissatisfied with all conditioned objects, enough to become free from strong feelings toward them, enough to be liberated from them. Two, there comes a time when after a long time, a second sun appears. With the appearance of the second sun, the small rivers and lakes dry up and evaporate and no longer exist. So impermanent are conditioned objects, so unstable, so unreliable. It is enough to become dissatisfied with all conditioned objects, enough to become free from strong feelings toward them, enough to be liberated from them. Three, there comes a time when after a long time, a third sun appears. With the appearance of the third sun, the great rivers, the Ganges, the Yamuna, the Asaravati, the Sarabhu, and the Mahi dry up and evaporate, evaporate and no longer exist. So impermanent are conditioned objects, so unstable, so unreliable, it is enough to become dissatisfied with all conditioned objects, enough to become free from strong feelings toward them, enough to be liberated from them. Four, there comes a time when after a long time, a fourth sun appears, with the appearance of the fourth sun, the great lakes from which those great rivers originate, Anatata, Sihipapata, Ratakara, Kanamunda, Kanala, Chadanta, and Mandakini dry up and evaporate and no longer exist. So impermanent are conditioned objects, so unstable, so unreliable, it is enough to become dissatisfied with all conditioned objects enough to become free from strong feelings toward them, enough to be liberated from them. With that, I'll pass it on to Jan. Thank you, Rick. Five, there comes a time when, after a long time, a fifth sun appears. With the appearance of the fifth sun, the waters in the great ocean sink by a hundred Johannes, 200 Johannes, 300 Johannes, 400 Johannes, 500 Johannes, 600 Johannes, 700 Johannes. The water left in the great ocean stands at the height of seven palm trees, at the height of six palm trees, five palm trees, four palm trees, three palm trees, two palm trees, a mere palm tree. The water left in the great ocean stands at the height of seven fathoms, six fathoms, five fathoms, four fathoms, three fathoms, two fathoms, a fathom, 1.8 meters half a fathom, up to the waist, up to the knees, up to the ankles. Just as in the autumn, when thick drops of rain are pouring down, the waters stand in the hoof prints of cattle here and there, 
so the waters left in the great ocean will stand here and there in pools the size of the hoofprints of cattle. With the appearance of the fifth sun, the water left in the great ocean is not enough even to reach the joints of one's fingers. So impermanent are conditioned objects, so unstable, so unreliable, it is enough to become dissatisfied with all conditioned objects, enough to become free from strong feelings towards them, enough to be liberated from them. Six, there comes a time when after the, a long time, a sixth, sixth sun appears. With the appearance of the sixth sun, this great earth and Sinaru, the king of the mountains, smoke, fume, and smolder. Just as the potter's fire, when kindled, first smokes, fumes, and smolders, so with the appearance of the sixth sun, this great earth and Sinaru, the king of the mountains, smoke, fume, and smolder. So impermanent are conditioned objects, so unstable, so unreliable. It is enough to become dissatisfied with all conditioned objects, enough to become free from strong feelings towards them, enough to be liberated from them. Seven, there comes a time when, after a long time, a seventh sun appears. With the appearance of the seventh sun, this great earth and Sinaru, the king of mountains, burst into flames, blaze up brightly and become one mass of flame. As the great earth and Sinaru are blazing and burning, the flame, cast up by the wind, rises even to the Brahma world. As Sinaru is blazing and burning, as it is undergoing destruction and being overcome by a great mass of heat, mountain peaks of 100 Yohannas disintegrate, mountain peaks of 200 Yohannas, 300 Yohannas, 400 Yohannas, 500 Yohannas disintegrate. When this great earth and Sinaru, the king of mountains, are blazing and burning, Neither ashes nor soot are seen, just as when ghee or oil are blazing and burning, neither ashes nor soot are seen. So it is when this great earth and Sinaru, the king of mountains, are blazing and burning. So impermanent are conditioned objects, so unstable, so unreliable. It is enough to become dissatisfied with all conditioned objects, enough to become free from strong feelings towards them, enough to be liberated from them. Monks, who except those who have seen the truth would think or understand this great earth and Sinaru, the king of mountains, will burn up, be destroyed, and no longer exist. All right. Thank you, Rick and Jan. So essentially what the Buddha is describing here is he's describing climate change, right? And he's describing it based on what he understands at the time. Oftentimes when there's these predictions of the future, the clarity of what somebody's able to describe is not as clear as what we understand later. But when he's describing the second sun and third sun and fourth sun, what he's explaining is the heat of the sun increasing and increasing and increasing and what we're experiencing now in climate change. And he goes on and he's explaining all these changes to the environment. And then he eventually gets to the end where he says, you know, this great earth essentially will burn up and be destroyed and will no longer exist. And he's saying, you know, who would essentially understand that or would know that as truth, except for somebody who's essentially studying and understanding these teachings to the point that they understand the universal truth of impermanence. Sometimes if you talk with people about how humanity is impermanent and it will no longer exist at some point, 
People can get very discontent about this because if they're craving permanence and wanting humanity to continue or wanting this great earth to continue, then when these things are discussed, people's minds can actually become very discontent. Um, and if they have wrong view, they're going to probably blame you for their anger. So the Buddha is explaining that you know someone who's seen the truth would think and understand that all of these things are impermanent and that eventually the great earth will no longer exist. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? It looks like we have no questions at this time, sir. All right. So we'll move to chapter 118. All right. And I have asked Moran to read chapter 118 for us. Yes. Thank you, sir. Not understanding and not penetrating the four noble truths. Monks, just as a stick thrown up into the air falls now on its bottom, now on its top, so too as beings roam and wander on, in ignorance and fettered by craving. Now they go from this world to the other world. Now they come from the other world to this world. For what reason? Because they have not seen the four noble truths. What for? The noble truth of discontentedness, the noble truth of the cause of discontentedness, the noble truth of the elimination of discontentedness, the noble truth of the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. Therefore, monks, an effort should be made to understand this is discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the cause of discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the elimination of discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. Monks, it is because of not understanding and not penetrating the four noble truths that you and I have roamed and wandered through this long course of the cycle of rebirth. What for? It is, monks, because of not understanding and not penetrating the noble truth of discontentedness, the noble truth of the cause of discontentedness, the noble truth of the elimination of discontentedness, the noble truth of the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness, that you and I have roamed and wandered through this long course of the cycle of rebirth. That noble truth of discontentedness, monks, has been understood and penetrated. That noble truth of the cause of discontentedness has been understood and penetrated. That noble truth of the elimination of discontentedness has been understood and penetrated. That noble truth of the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness has been understood and penetrated. Craving for existence has been cut off. The conduit to existence has been destroyed. Now there is no more renewed existence. All right. Thank you, Miranda. There's a few things to talk about here. So in order to get to enlightenment and end the whole cycle of rebirth, a individual would need to understand the Four Noble Truths because it's the Four Noble Truths that you understand that it's the problem is discontentedness, these conditioned pleasant feelings, painful feelings, neither painful nor pleasant. The cause of those is craving, desire, attachment. The elimination of those discontent feelings is to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. And then the path forward leading to the complete elimination of discontentedness is the Eightfold Path. And the more that you learn this and you understand it and you cultivate the wisdom of the Four Noble Truths and being able to see it clearly for yourself, you have this breakthrough to establishing right view. The right view of what's causing your discontent mind is craving, desire, attachment. 
wrong view is that we typically view it as other people are causing us to be discontent or some people think that God's causing it or some other being or some other situation rather than understanding that it's craving desire attachment. So the reason why people continue or beings continue in the cycle of rebirth is because they haven't penetrated the Four Noble Truths and understanding the cause and the elimination of discontentedness. And without having that breakthrough and establishing right view, you wouldn't ever be able to eliminate craving, desire, attachment, because you don't even know what it is. You don't necessarily know that it's a problem and you don't see what is actually causing the real difficulties in the unenlightened mind. So the Buddha is explaining how that's what is the real reason why beings continue to roam and wander in the cycle of rebirth. And then here he's saying, Craving for existence has been cut off, meaning if you eliminate the longing and yearning to exist, that's one of the longing or yearning, one of the craving, desire, attachments that a being needs to eliminate in order to get to enlightenment. There's many craving, desire, attachments that are in the mind that need to be eliminated to get to enlightenment, but one of those is craving to exist. So the Buddha is saying for himself, this craving for existence has been cut off. And that's the conduit or that's the, the way that existence continues is that if there's craving, particularly craving for existence, then there's going to be continued existence. That's the conduit. What a conduit is, is if you have like a, an electrical wire that's taking electric current from one thing to the other, the electrical wire is the conduit. So the craving is the conduit that leads to the next existence. So if craving has been cut off, then there's no conduit that leads to a next existence. And the Buddha is saying that has been destroyed. And then he's saying now there is no more renewed existence. So once craving, this mental longing and strong eagerness, this chasing after the objects of our affection is eliminated, then there's no more renewed existence in the cycle of rebirth. You've put an end to discontentedness in this life, and you'll never experience rebirth to experience birth, sickness, aging, death, or any kind of discontentedness or displeasure ever again. Enlightenment is permanent once a being experiences enlightenment. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? It looks like we don't have any questions for this chapter, sir. Okay, so we'll go to the next one. Now we're moving into the section about enlightenment or nibbana. Chapter 119. 119, I believe. I will ask me to read it. Chapter 119 is a simile of nibbana, enlightenment. Sariputta, I understand nibbana, i.e. enlightenment, and the path and way leading to nibbana, and I also understand how one who has entered this path will, by realizing for himself with direct knowledge, also experience, here and now, enter upon and reside in the liberation of mind and liberation by wisdom that are taintless, but the destruction of the taints or fetters. Suppose there are a pond with clean, agreeable, cool water, transparent with smooth banks, delightful, and nearby a dense wood and then a man scorched and exhausted by hot weather, weary, parched, and thirsty, came by a path going in one way only towards the same pond. Then a man with good sight on seeing him would say, this person so behaves, so conducts himself, 
has taken such a path that he will come to the same pond. And then later on, he sees that he is plunged into the pond, bathed, drunk, and relieved all of his distress, fatigue, and fever, and has come out again and is sitting or lying in the woods, experiencing exclusively peaceful feelings. So too, by encompassing mind with mind, I understand a certain person thus. This person so behaves, so conducts himself, has taken such a path that by realizing for himself with direct knowledge or experience, he here and now will enter upon and reside in the liberation of mind and liberation by wisdom that are taintless, the destruction of the taints. And then later on, I see that by realizing for himself with direct knowledge and experience, he here and now enters upon and resides in the liberation of mind by wisdom that are taintless with the destruction of the taints and is experiencing exclusively peaceful feelings. All right. Thank you, Rick. So here the Buddha is kind of explaining enlightenment just a little bit. He doesn't really go into a whole lot of depth throughout all of his discourses of exactly what enlightenment is, but he's definitely talking about it at different points in the discourses that we have available. Now, during his lifetime, he may have explained it, you know, more exhaustively, but in terms of the discourses that we have, this is one of those discourses where he's explaining a bit about enlightenment or nibbana. Firstly, here he's explaining, you know, progressing on this path and kind of realizing for yourself through direct experience. This is where I say that the teachings need to be learned and reflected upon independently verified, right? You can't just believe your way to enlightenment. You need to independently verify or acquire direct knowledge or direct experience through learning, reflecting, and practicing the teachings. And then through having done that, a person can then liberate the mind because they have cultivated this wisdom. By cultivating the wisdom of what's causing the mind to be discontent and cultivating the wisdom of how to train the mind and liberate it, then you can actually take action to liberate it. But until you know what the problem is and the solutions are, you wouldn't be able to do that. And that's where the wisdom of the Buddha, because he already solved his problem with the discontent mind, he's sharing what it took him in order to eliminate the discontent mind. So he's able to share the wisdom of what it would take for you to do that as well. And what it requires or what it needs is to destroy the taints or eliminate the fetters, these 10 fetters, these 10 pollutions of mind. That's the real detailed description of what the pollutions of mind are. So by the time a being gets to enlightenment, the mind is taintless or unpolluted or unconditioned because they've destroyed the way the Buddha describes it. They've destroyed the pollutions of mind or these taints. They've obliterated them is sometimes the language that he uses. And then he's explaining this, you know, pond with this very clear and transparent uh, water, essentially the mind becoming pure. That's what's happening on this path to enlightenment is you're purifying the mind of these taints or these pollutions and the mind's becoming more and more pure. And eventually you get to the point where there's these exclusively peaceful feelings. There's no more discontentedness in the mind whatsoever. The mind's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. And the way that you do that is through eliminating the 10 fetters which is what he describes once again here in this next paragraph. 
And then he explains that having realized for yourself with direct experience or direct knowledge, you will understand, and he explains this in other discourses too, you will understand when you've gotten to enlightenment because you will have gone one year, two years, three years without any discontentedness whatsoever. And you will know here and now that your mind is liberated, that it no longer experiences this pollution of mind, that your mind is taintless because you've destroyed these 10 fetters, you've eliminated them from the mind. And then from that point, is where the mind will be experiencing these exclusively peaceful feelings. Questions on this chapter? No questions on Zoom at this time. Miranda, do you have any questions? Um, yes, sir, thank you. Um, to go back a couple of chapters, Pepico has asked on YouTube, do conditioned objects mean objects with color, taste, physical form? Yeah, all of those would be conditioned objects. So any object that arises, that changes and fades away, this is a conditioned object. The Buddha explains this in other parts of his teachings, what a conditioned object is versus an unconditioned object. So conditioned objects, they will arise, they will change, and they'll fade away. So for example, this mug that I drink water out of, at one point it wasn't this mug, it was earth. It was paint or pigment and Prior to that, it was other things, right? So it arose, this mug arose out of bringing together certain materials. And then it changes, you know, it's going to lose its color, it's going to chip eventually, it will start changing. And then eventually it will fade away, it will no longer be this mug anymore because it's an impermanent object. So anything that arises, changes, and fades away is a conditioned object, which is pretty much any material thing that you see with your eyes. All these things are impermanent. There's only a few things that are unconditioned. The mental state of enlightenment is unconditioned, that it doesn't arise, it doesn't change, and it doesn't fade away. So an enlightened mind, a being is experiencing that because they've removed the conditions that are causing it to be shaken up. Those conditions at a high level are craving, anger, and ignorance. At a more detailed level, the 10 fetters. Those pollutions are what's causing the mind to go up and down and up and down and experience discontentedness. But when you clear all of that out of the mind, now the mind is unconditioned. It's experiencing this unconditioned peace, calm, serenity, and contentedness with joy. And those qualities of mind, they don't arise, they don't change, they don't fade away. They just exist in the mind permanently. Also, if you practice unconditional love, unconditional love is unconditioned. It's not a condition. What we oftentimes think of love in the unenlightened state is we say, you know, if you meet these conditions, I will love you, right? If you spend time with me, if you call me on the phone, or if you live with me, or you cook, or you clean, or you wash my clothes, or, you know, you say nice things about me, you know, these are certain conditions that I have, that if you do these things, I will love you. But if you stop doing these things, then I don't love you anymore. That's not actually real love. That's selfishness. That's you know, having conditions that you want somebody to meet. And if they meet these conditions, you will be happy. And if they don't meet those conditions, you'll be sad or you'll be angry. So we call that love, but really what it is, is it's craving, desire, attachment. What unconditioned love is, is I love you. Therefore, I would like to see you be well. 
You don't have to do anything to earn my love. So therefore, there's nothing you can do for me to stop loving you. So unconditioned love is I just love you as you are, not trying to change you or not trying to convince you that you're a bad person or anything like that. I just love you as you are and interested in seeing you be well. This is unconditioned love and it's permanent. And then also the natural laws of existence. They are unconditioned. They are permanent as well because they don't change. They didn't arise. They don't change. They don't fade away. So these you know, these natural laws of existence that the Buddha taught, this is why his teachings from 2,500 years ago are just as applicable today as they were back then. They're timeless because they don't change. They're unconditioned. So enlightenment and the natural laws of existence are permanent. And part of that is this unconditioned love, right? So these things are permanent or unconditioned where pretty much everything else around you is going to be a conditioned object. Yes, thank you, sir. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are no more questions on YouTube and Facebook at this time. And no more questions on Zoom either. Okay, so we have this last chapter for today, chapter 120. Jan, will you take the reins? Sure, thank you, Rick. An untaught, ordinary person. Here, monks, an untaught, ordinary person who has no regard for noble ones and is unskilled and undisciplined in their teachings, who has no regard for true men and is unskilled and undisciplined in their teachings, perceives earth as earth. Having perceived earth as earth, he conceives himself as earth. He conceives himself in earth. He conceives himself apart from earth. He conceives earth to be mine. He excites in earth. Why is that? because he has not fully understood it, I say. He perceives water as water. Having perceived water as water, he conceives himself as water. He conceives himself in water. He conceives himself apart from water. He conceives water to be mine. He excites in water. Why is that? Because he's not fully understood it, I say. He perceives fire as fire. He perceives wind as wind. He perceives beings as beings. He perceives gods as gods. He perceives Pajapata as Pajapata. He perceives Brahma as Brahma. He perceives the gods of streaming radiance as the gods of streaming radiance. He perceives the gods of refulgent glory as the gods of refulgent glory. He perceives the gods of great fruit as the gods of great fruit. He perceives the overlord as the overlord. He perceives the, perceives the base of infinite space as the base of infinite space. He perceives the base of infinite consciousness as the base of infinite consciousness. He perceives the base of nothingness as the base of nothingness. He perceives the base of neither perception nor non-perception as the base of neither perception nor non-perception. He perceives the seen as the seen. He perceives the heard as the heard. He perceives the sensed as the sensed. He perceives the recognized as the recognized. He perceives unity as unity. He perceives diversity as diversity. He perceives all as all. He perceives Nibbana as Nibbana. Having perceived Nibbana as Nibbana, he conceives himself as Nibbana. He conceives himself in Nibbana. He conceives himself apart from Nibbana. He conceives Nibbana to be mine. 
Hiksaitsinibana. Why is that? Because he has not fully understood it, I say. All right. Thank you, Jan. So here the Buddha describes this untaught ordinary person. This is someone who's a non-practitioner who's off the path, someone who isn't cultivating wisdom versus someone who he describes as a noble one or a noble disciple. This is someone who's actually gaining instruction and excelling and learning and practicing and getting to the point where they've cultivated wisdom. So a noble disciple or a noble one, they're going to be much more disciplined in understanding the natural laws of existence. They're going to have cultivated a certain amount of wisdom. So they would understand things that an ordinary untaught person wouldn't understand. So here the Buddha is explaining how someone who hasn't learned these teachings is going to perceive all these various things in a very kind of delusional way, right? And he goes through all these different things and essentially saying that a person who's off the path to enlightenment isn't going to understand these things. And he gets all the way to enlightenment or Nibbana and saying that, you know, a, a person who's off the path to enlightenment isn't going to understand what Nibbana is. And this is something that can be helpful for you is that as you go about in the world, sometimes if you're associating with a lot of people in our community who are talking about the teachings and understanding the teachings, when you go out into the world, you kind of have to remember that, oh yeah, other people are going to blame me for their anger. Because if you start getting so used to you understanding right view and that you're causing all your own discontent feelings, you might sometimes forget that, other people are going to blame you for their anger or other things like this. So it's good to not look down on people who aren't on the path to enlightenment, but it's good to have the wisdom to understand that they're going to look at the world in a very different way than you do. And this is where you can have concern for their misfortune, but it's important for you to understand this so that when you're interacting with people that you don't have the assumption that they have the same wisdom as you. Not thinking about it in terms of you're superior to them, but just be understanding and patient and have compassion that as you are dealing with certain things in the world, other people can really struggle and have a lot of difficulties and so many challenges with things in the world that you find rather easy and rather straightforward because of the wisdom that you've cultivated. So sometimes your mind can swing from having this craving, this anger, this ignorance, to now you're starting to have this wisdom and you kind of forget what it's like to potentially be in the unenlightened state as your mind's becoming more and more awake. So it's important to always maintain your understanding of what you experience in the unenlightened state so that as you come in contact with other beings who are really struggling over some of the most simple things sometimes that you think are just so easy and so simple and your mind is unaffected by them, they can be very devastated by it. So it's important that you know you don't laugh, you don't joke them, you don't you know, mock them or things like this, because this would be, you know, kind of hurtful for them. And it would, your mind wouldn't have very much loving kindness and compassion if you approach situations like this. So sometimes you need to just kind of slow down and realize that other people are having a really hard time processing what it is that you've just decided. And that was so easy for you to decide because you understand impermanence or you understand craving or you understand some of these other things that the Buddha 
teaches so you're able to maybe come to a decision relatively easy where other people might be really struggling with the decisions that they're encountering or they might be struggling and having difficulties with the decisions that you've made. So one of the aspects of being an enlightened being is to understand unenlightened beings and use this wisdom that you've cultivated to get to enlightenment to kind of make it easier for unenlightened beings around you. So let's say, for example, you're a coworker or you're a boss or something like this, and you're needing to make some pretty significant decisions at work, and this was really easy for you to do. And now if you go into a meeting and you start laying out all these decisions, this represents change. And for people who are off the path to enlightenment, their mind's going to really struggle with impermanence. So if you implement a whole lot of changes at work really quickly, then other people's minds can really struggle with that. And they're going to oftentimes blame you for their discontentedness because they don't have right view. You're the one making the changes and it can actually damage your relationships at work. So even though you know the truth, that you're not causing their discontentedness, they don't know the truth. So as a wise being who becomes more and more enlightened, as you understand these things, you would like to try to ease things for other people because they lack wisdom and they're not taught. So therefore, if you were a boss or you were a coworker and you needed to make a lot of changes, there's things that you might choose to do ahead of time in order to lessen the difficulties of these other people having to experience these changes. You might go around and kind of talk to some of your coworkers or some of your employees if you're a boss and kind of let them know that you're thinking about these changes. You haven't come to any decisions yet. You would like to hear their input, their feedback, and you might give it you know, a month or two, depending on how significant the changes are, that you kind of float around some of these changes that you're looking to make and then involve other people in the decision-making process so that they can, ahead of the curve, start making the decision to consciously move towards this change that you're about to make. And then eventually, you might get to a point where you have a big meeting and you kind of announce these changes, but maybe 50, 60, 80% of the people there have already kind of knew about these changes coming. They've already adopted these changes in their mind and their thinking, and they were already kind of aware of it. And you kind of gave them this time to gradually move towards the changes that you're making. So it's really helpful to keep in mind that you're going to be associating with a lot of people who are off the path to enlightenment, who have no idea the certain wisdoms that you're cultivating, and then use the wisdom that you know of the unenlightened mind and how it functions with craving permanence and having wrong view and having wrong intention, wrong speech, wrong action, and all the others, and try to kind of ease things in even though you know that you're not causing any harm through your speech and your actions, it's very wise to be attentive and aware of other people's challenges because they haven't necessarily cultivated the same wisdom or trained the mind in the way that you have. And this will help you in your personal and professional relationships as you're able to function that way. And people will really be pleased to be around you because you're not making these real abrupt changes in their life. Um, and they see you as somebody who's kind of easing things into a work environment, for example. And you can also apply this to your home environment too, your family environment. If there are certain changes you're making at home, you might choose to do that kind of a little bit slowly. Or in your neighborhood, if you're involved in any kind of community 
uh, decisions about your village or your neighborhood. You might choose to kind of do those things a little bit slowly and allow people to adjust their mind to the decisions that are being made. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? I'm not seeing any uh, any questions at this time, sir. All right. Well, I will just thank all of you guys for attending our class today. We've just completed up to chapter 120, and next week we're going to be in chapters 121 through 130. So you're welcome to read those chapters ahead of time. If you need these books, you can go to buddhadailywisdom.com. From there, there's a link for free books, and you can download them. You can download them and print them, or you can order them on Amazon, which there's a link there for you, or you can go to your country's equivalent of Amazon and you'll be able to order the books in print because it's really helpful that you read the chapters before and or after class because you're going to get the words of the Buddha. You're going to get the reference in case you would like to go back and look at the original source text. And you're also going to see what I've shared in terms of teachings on that particular chapter. And then in class, I kind of share some additional things that may or may not actually be in the book as well. So the combination between the classes and the books will help you to more fully understand these teachings. And then of course, you're learning, reflecting and practicing so that then you can move these teachings into your practice and gain the benefit out of what it is that you're cultivating as wisdom. Tomorrow in our group learning program, we're going to be studying chapter 20 in this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment. This is volume one. Chapter 20 is titled Animal to Human, The Evolution of Our Consciousness. This fits in really nicely with this book, volume 11, that we're studying because in volume one, this is kind of the first place where I introduce students to the cycle of rebirth. And then it's not until volume 11 that they really start getting deeper and deeper into it. Because early on, what you would like to focus on with your practice is those core teachings that the Buddha mentioned. You know, the, the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts, all of these teachings are what's going to actively move the mind towards this awakened mental state of enlightenment and move the mind to this higher consciousness. So I typically suggest to new students to postpone any kind of investigation of the cycle of rebirth until later, maybe a year or two or even three, who knows, depending you know, where your practice is, kind of postpone it until later. But here in volume one, chapter 20 is the first place that I start introducing students to start understanding the cycle of rebirth. So we're going to be discussing that in tomorrow's class and you're welcome to join for that if you like or listen on the replay of YouTube, Facebook or the podcast. And then in our Wednesday class, we're going to be doing loving kindness meditation. So you're welcome to come and be part of the community to support, encourage and motivate each other in our meditation practice and doing loving kindness meditation together. So thank you all for joining. I appreciate all the help with reading and the moderators and anybody who asks questions during the class. It really helps to bring out the teachings in the class. So thank you all for attending. Thank you all for your dedication and your diligence to learning these teachings. We'll see you in a future class. Have a very lovely and wonderful rest of your day. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. 
To access more teachings, visit BuddhaDailyWisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.